wonderful day, full of knowledge. Project A Podcast. Quick question, who has heard of dependency injection? Who is using it on a regular basis? Great. Then let's go. <laughs> now, um, for all of all of us um, that might not have heard or uh, might not used it already, uh, we try to demystify a bit what what's behind that and also try to show why it is useful, especially then um, in the JavaScript context. So, where did we come from? In the early days, the internet looked like this. So we had websites, and they had like tiny bits of JavaScript to actually add uh, interactivity here and there. Nowadays, it looks a bit different. So we have um, websites with big JavaScript clients running. Even on the server, there are um, JavaScript applications running. So actually, with the increased complexity of those applications, um, new challenges um, came up. And I think it makes quite a lot of sense to learn from uh, established engineering practices, uh, such as um, dependency injection and uh, learned from, from my smart colleagues at Project A. Um, because when I started being a developer, we still uh, deployed with FTP. And um, since then, actually, a lot, of changed, a lot have changed in the front end, and we uh, adopted quite, quite some best practice. So what is dependency injection? Yeah, I mean, when you look it up online, you f find some nice definitions. And uh, I was actually using um, dependency injection for quite a while already. But when I wrote, uh, when I uh, read this definition, I was like, "What?" And um, so we don't uh, read this right now. We actually go with a little bit more practical approach uh, here. So this is the agenda for today. So we start first with an introduction that is um, actually describing um, which problems can be solved by dependency injection. Then we add a little bit of theory to it. And um, then we look at the DI frameworks in JavaScript. And in the end, we will conclude everything and give you hopefully some nice takeaways so that you can uh, put something on your wall when you go come home. <laughs> um, yeah, by the way, we have 70 slides, so maybe we should be quick, right? <laughs> 63 to go. So when, when, when this uh, talk is over, you really earned your beer. <laughs> As Chris already mentioned, um, JavaScript applications uh, became much more complicated in the last uh, couple of years. Um, so questions arise like, how can I maintain these kind of applications? How can I scale them? And uh, basically, uh, how, how can I test them uh, like accurately? Um, maybe let's uh, have a look at the testability, because actually, um, all of those um, things can be, in a way, solved with dependency injection. And um, yeah, it's like maybe a good entry point to uh, look at testability here. So, I wrote this code. No, I am kidding. Chris actually did it because it's JavaScript and I have no idea of JavaScript. But I'm doing a talk about JavaScript right now. Um, so this is actually a very, uh, pretty simple function. It's actually um, just uh, calling an API that returns um, a talk title uh, depending on an ID. Pretty simple. And now we want to write a test for it. So 
it's also not nothing complicated here. We just um, define an expected uh, title, then we call the function with an uh, identifier, and we get something back that we assert there. So if uh, uh, the, the API returns the right result, then our tests are green. But what happens when this API is for whatever reason down? Then we actually have a problem here. So what we actually want is to somehow replace this fetch function there. And maybe you can tell us how to do that. Maybe one uh, quick uh, addition before fetch, there's a return missing, just to be precise. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> wrote the code, so. <laughs> OK, so we saw the problem. We, have, we implicitly test, actually, our API, and we try to uh, improve our test a little. So let's try to refactor and get rid of that problem. Um, so basically, we see this, the same function also with the missing return statement. And <laughs> instead of just assuming that this fetch API is globally available, we now actually make use of the possibility to pass in a function as a parameter to this getTalk function. And that is possible in JavaScript as functions are first class citizens in, in, the, in the language. Um, and the rest of our implementation does not change at all. So it does our test. It looks pretty much uh, the same, except that we now additionally pass um, this function mock fetch um, while calling our function. And this mock function, how could that look like? In the simplest case, it could just return a promise because an API call is an asynchronous operation. Um, and that promise, or in Java, it would be a future, I think. Um, that promise actually resolves to the string that we assume. And then when we run our test, the test works. But since we mocked our function, we are not actually depending on, on the API anymore. Um, so we improved actually the quality of our test. Hooray, we did dependency injection in the very simplest form that you can actually assume. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that is actually a quite nice uh, solution because it's super simple and it solves our testing issue. Um, the problem is we don't know anything yet about how dependency injection can actually uh, solve other problems like this maintainability thing that I mentioned earlier or the deep coupling of code. So maybe um, let's step a little bit back now and um, talk about something more theoretical here. So um, a bit of theory. Um, actually, the dependency injection principle is based on two. Oh no, the dependent. Now I did the mistake <laughs> the, that I shouldn't do. Um, but so the dependency injection pattern is actually based on two principles, and the first one is actually the dependency version princi principle, and the uh, other one is the inversion of control principle. And uh, often they are used um, like or people mix them up a lot because actually they sound quite similar and they are kind of related, but they are not the same. So let's maybe have a look at dependency inversion first. Dependency inversion is actually, when you read the definition, um, it, it says that um, high-level modules shouldn't depend on lower-level ones and both should uh, depend on abstractions. What does that mean? By the way, uh, dependency version is one of the solid principles, but we're not going to talk about this today. Um, let's have a look at our famous API client uh, and um, see if we can find dependency inversion here. 
So we, we actually extended the example a little bit. So we have two classes now. Uh, the API client uh, that uh, is able to fetch uh, or to call the API and then a talk API client that is just able to uh, fetch talks. So, and here we see we have actually a violation of the dependency inversion principle because we are actually uh, here depending directly on um, another implementation and not on an abstraction. So how do we solve that issue? We can actually solve that by adding an interface. And maybe for those of you who don't know what an interface is, um, it's actually a contract for classes, um, just as this example here. And it provides you some um, methods, but it only provides the method signatures and no implementation detail. So when a class comes along and wants to actually implement this interface or wants to fulfill this contract, it needs to um, define some uh, implementation details for this kind of methods. Going back to our example, we actually add an interface here for our API client that is pretty simple. It just has a method signature um, get and um, yeah, a path argument here. And um, then we adapt the API client. That's also quite simple because we just have to implement that interface. And um, we don't have to do anything else because the API client already provides the get methods. So far, so good. Let's have a look at uh, the talk API client, which is then actually using the interface instead of um, the class. And we are, we are doing that in a very simple way. We just pass it as a uh, function argument here. And then like that, we actually yeah, I mean, here we see the dependency, and um, we don't depend on the class anymore. So when you compare the two class diagrams now, you see this is the old one, this is the new one. We actually decoupled those two classes from each other, um, so because they both depend on an abstraction now and not on each other. Inversion of control. Um, so as the name actually already implies, um, it is about inverting the control flow of the application, of the, the program. Again, quite abstract. How could that look like? Um, again, we have our uh, we have a kind of similar example. We extended it slightly to, to make our point now. Um, so we have this function get talk that gets uh, an ID to then actually fetch the talk. Um, in the first part, um, we are creating a reader object um, that we provide, for example, uh, with a user and a password to then access the database. We read data based on the ID from there. And then in the second part of our function, we create an instance of a response writer, whatever that does, and write data somewhere. This is the classic flow now, for example. How could it look like when we invert the control flow? Oh. Um, so now we uh, shifted slightly the, the focus of that function by actually providing instances of the reader and the writer already to the function and only have the business logic that, does, that reads data and writes data in there. 
Um, the nice thing about that is actually that we now kind of separated the different concerns. So the instantiation of our dependencies is not really part of our business logic anymore or of our code. Um, it purely focuses on, on business logic. And if you now imagine that you might have a lot of use cases where you have to read and write in different parts of your application, it could be that this actually leads to uh, less duplication because you might be able to instantiate your instances in a single location and then pass the dependencies um, to the places where you actually want to use them. Um, when we speak about inversion of control, there are different implementation techniques. One is the strategy pattern. We will not talk about that one because we already have 70 slides and uh, the, the talk will not get, get longer. But there's also something that is called the, the service locator pattern. We will uh, go into the details in a few seconds. And then there's actually the dependency injection, and we will also see uh, what that is about. So yeah, the service locator pattern um, is actually the idea um, to, to have a central registry for objects or services. And um, when we look at an example again, we can actually uh, create um, a quite simple implementation for the service locator pattern. So we just create a class with uh, a class variable that holds uh, the objects, and then we have an, a, a register function uh, where you can actually add objects to this array, um, this class array. And um, then we have a get function where you can retrieve it based on an ID that you uh, defined when you registered it. So for our um, example, this would look like uh, this, we actually create the container, register the API client, and then we pass the container uh, here as a function argument to the get method. And uh, then the talk API client is actually able to get um, the API client fully assembled from the uh, container. So what, is, what are the pros of that approach? For sure, it, it actually reduces code application because you don't have multiple places where you instantiate classes. Also, you are um, in, yeah, decoup decoupling your code a lot with this approach because uh, classes don't depend directly on each other anymore. And it's super easy to implement. Of course, I mean, that was a very, very simple example, but um, uh, I think um, that already fulfills the pattern, so it's actually super uh, straightforward. On the uh, contra side, um, I would say that it actually the, 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 the disadvantage is that it actually um, hides or obscures this kind of dependencies a little bit because when you just use the container and this kind of strings that you have, then the dependencies between classes are not so visible anymore, so the interactions of classes are hard to oversee. Also, um, uh, most errors you find when, for instance, um, like one service is missing in your container, you only see when you run the code and not in your IDE. Of course, there are plugins, but maybe um, for your particular implementation of the service locator, there is uh, no support. So. Overall, I would say um, it's not the best uh, developer experience. 
And some people also claim that it's more or less an anti-pattern, even though I would say there are definitely um, situations where it makes sense to use it. So now, finally, dependency injection. When we will now look at dependency injection, actually there will be um, four kind of actors that fulfill different roles in, in that, that model. So we have services. Um, we already used, I think, the, the term already. Uh, so basically class instances. And we have clients, also class instances. And the, the, the relationship between them is that uh, a client actually uses a functionality that the service provides. Then we have interfaces. We have already seen that. And the new uh, part actually is an injector. And we will see in a second what that, what that one does. So if we now look at how those are in a relationship, kind of this client interface service relationship we have already seen. Um, that is what, what Toby described. And now, in addition, we have an injector. So the injector actually takes care that all the dependencies that are declared are actually fulfilled. So the injector will instantiate um, our service and will then in inject that one into the client. So how can that look like in code? Yeah, I mean, two different ways of um, implementing dependency injection in the client uh, are one is constructor injection, so you actually pass your dependency or your service through the constructor to the uh, client here. And um, the, the second one is pretty similar, but you actually don't pass it through the constructor, but uh, through a setter method. And um, yeah, the constructor injection has the advantage that the service that was injected once is actually immutable, so you cannot alter it anymore. Um, the setter injection is mutable, so um, so yeah, you can actually change it after it was once injected. Both uh, approaches have their pros and cons. Um, I like the constructor injection because it has a nice side effect here. So it actually uh, prevents you from uh, creating circular dependencies. Why is that? So without uh, constructor injection, you might, may have two functions, class A and B. And they, two, they have two methods, and one is actually uh, instantiating the other and the other way around. And if you do that, so here in this case, that's a circular dependency. Um, when you apply constructor injection here, you see that, um, that it's not possible anymore because when you want to construct uh, or create func uh, class A, then you need class B first. And that's not possible anymore, which is, in my opinion, a very good thing because it um, um, helps you to keep your code uh, maintainable. Um, yeah, so just for the record, we have seen this uh, slide already before. So here we have an interface and the service. So like just for the record here. Um, now it's getting more interesting. It's actually a very simple example again. But how do the injectors look like? Um, for the constructor injection, I created a very simple injector that is just instantiating the one cl client and injecting it to the other. And then it's calling the get talk API. And the setter injection looks pretty similar. But instead of passing the dependencies through the constructor, it uses a setter method. The disadvantage of this implementation here is not the injection itself. The disadvantage, I would say, here is that um, we 
that our injector is also um, triggering business logic and that is actually something that we want to avoid. Yes, because if, if we look at, at injectors and what are actually the, the core tasks, then um, we see that the injector should purely focus on the management of dependencies. Um, it must be actually aware of the hierarchy of, of classes in order to uh, be able to construct all the dependencies and, and inject them accordingly. And this is, this is not a must, but it's highly, highly um, preferable, I think, that it also takes care of avoiding or warning uh, about circular dependencies, because that is something that you don't want to have in your code, because it will make things uh, way more complicated on the long term. Um, so we just saw this very simple injector, right? where basically the wiring of our dependencies was hard-coded and this is obviously is nothing that works in, 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 in real life. So in order for us, or for, yeah, for us to be able to do that in a very uh, comfortable and convenient way, there are dependency injection frameworks. Um, so a couple of uh, examples um, in the beginning. Um, when we had a look at our back-end teams at Project A, so we have a PHP-focused team, they uh, use symphonies, sometimes also Laravel, and uh, both actually have a dependency injection mechanism in place. Uh, same actually uh, goes for our Java team, so with Spring you also get such a functionality. How about JavaScript? We will see later. Um, there are actually kind of different flavors how, how that dependency injection actually looks like. Um, but what we just seen is that there is the magic in the happening in the injector, and the injector actually needs information about how to construct the dependencies and what to inject. So it needs to we need to provide information actually to the injector, and that's where we see the different flavors. So um, one mechanism is to use annotations for that. Um, and that could look basically like this. Like this. Um, we just annotate our code to add um, kind of meta information to it. And here we basically have um, the, uh, we say that a resource should be injected into our in this in this uh, kind in in this case uh, setter inject injection um, and we we create the connection between our the dependency that we expect and the identifier that we that we define for that annotations are super easy to use also it's kind of nice that you when you see your um, setter method for instance or your constructor have the dependency um, directly next to them um, that makes it quite uh, readable I would say but on the uh, contrast side I, um, it's actually uh, a problem maybe that um, the client is not really uh, framework agnostic anymore because you need some kind of way to interpret your annotations and um, yeah, so you cannot easily move uh, from a, one framework to the other anymore. Um, then one other thing is, um, which is also a problem from my, uh, from my perspective, is that you actually have dependency management in your uh, service code, so you mix up uh, things there. So it's basically an implicit dependency to another client or service. Um, 
how, how could that be solved in another way? So it's also very common, like for instance in Symphony or Spring that is implemented like that, um, that the injector is actually reading some configs and uh, these configs um, are providing meta information about the services and uh, how they should be assembled and then is processing it um, and uh, creates actually the service instances. In a lot of cases there's also a, a container used to register this, uh, to register the services so that um, you don't have uh, the same instances for the same services twice or m more times and um, so here you see that is actually uh, maybe a, a, a good way to use the service locator pattern. Um, how does it look like when you uh, look at the configuration files? So here is an example in XML, but you can also use other uh, things like YAML or, I don't know, JSON, whatever. Um, we, I think it's very common to use XML. I like it personally. Um, and you see here that uh, you declare a service and then every service gets an ID that you can reference then when you do like injection through the constructor and uh, through the setter. Uh, what is the good part about this? Ah, that is something that you want to show. Yes, of course. Uh, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, what is an advantage of, of that approach actually? Um, we have the framework responsibility for creating and injecting all our, assembly, uh, our dependencies. That is actually what we want to do, not manually. Um, by the separation between our configuration and our business code, we um, are kind of framework agnostic. So this can be, for example, useful if you use third-party um, third-party classes that you cannot edit yourself, where you cannot add annotations. Um, then you can. Then it makes sense to to put that information into a separate config. Again, we have those uh, separation of concerns by separating uh, configuration from business code. And um, yeah, if, if the, the framework provides that, then uh, it can warn us uh, for, from off, can warn us off circular dependencies. Um, what is negative about that? So it might be that it's not really obvious how those configuration files are actually connected to your classes. That is way more obvious if you have annotations directly next to your code. Um, so it might not be that intuitive if your IDE does not really support to creating those connections between uh, configurations and your classes, then it might be also a bit hard to navigate through your code. Um, but for common frameworks, actually the support, I guess, in the P2P world at least, is, is quite good, right? Mm -hmm. So now, JavaScript. <laughs> um, so we've seen already in the very beginning this super naive implementation where we just make use of the possibility to pass functions, for example. Um, so we, uh, we inject our dependencies as just parameters. What about popular application frameworks? I mean, we don't want to, we learned now that it's actually quite convenient not to care about dependency injection manually. So do actually popular frameworks support dependency injection? We will ask, uh, um, answer that in a second. And are there actually dedicated dependency injection frameworks? Let's have a look at Vue.js. It's uh, quite popular and um, 
when I had a look at the documentation of UJS, they have actually a section about a dependency injection analysis. They call it component edge cases. All right. Um, so they describe dependency injection, um, uh, or they say you can think of dependency injection as a sort of long-range props. So usually with props, you pass down um, information down your um, component tree in your UI. And this is basically a mechanism to skip a couple of levels. So you can define, um, you can provide a dependency at one level and then uh, in, a, in a, a deeper stage in your hierarchy actually um, access those dependencies. So how does that look like? Um, when defining a view component, you can just define this provide key and there provide all your dependencies. And then in any child component actually down in your tree, you can use the inject property to then fetch them. And there you have then the, the connection via this um, string actually to, to, re to fetch them. And then they're available there. This is maybe some kind of dependency injection. It looks a bit like the, the uh, service locator to me. Um, then I let's have a look at, at React. They can do something very similar with a different technique. So React actually provides an API for contexts. Um, so in this example here, we create such a context and we create an instance of our API client. Then we have a parent component. And uh, here in React.jsx, we define kind of a higher order component, this um, context, and that can um, give you a provider. And this provider can have a value attached. And in this case, it's this client. And then in there, we have a, our child component. And every child component now can uh, call use context and fetch basically that value that was provided by, by that context. And in our case, it's, it's the client. And it call, can call then the get title of that client. So it's actually quite similar. You can pass dependencies from somewhere at the top of your application hierarchy to a descendant. And you decouple them, because the descendant does not know where the injected property is actually coming from. Um, and the ancestor component does actually not know where the dependency is used. Again, kind of this uh, service locator pattern. Um, yeah, but we have seen dependency injection as something a bit more powerful, a bit more flexible. So uh, can we use it also in a more generic way, actually? Uh, it turns out you can. And uh, there are actually quite a couple of libraries uh, in JavaScript that provide you some kind of uh, dependency injection implementation. And the most important thing in that regard uh, is that they are all claimed to be very powerful. So if you want something very powerful, you should probably have a look at this kind of um, uh, libraries here. Uh, there is one that is particularly powerful, I would say, uh, because it has a lot of stars on GitHub. And it's Inversify.js. So um, let's have a look at Inversify.js. Um, Again, we uh, have a look um, at this framework by using our 
uh, example. And here you see we implemented like kind of the constructor injection for our talk API client. And then um, we use the inversify DI container that you can actually instantiate like that. Then you bind your classes to certain IDs, like those are basically strings. And then um, in the next step, uh, you actually do the injection. So you define uh, the API client as an injectable, and um, then in the next step, inject it to your uh, talk API client. In the end, if you want to have uh, an instance of your talk API client, you just call the getter method of the container, and then you get a fully assembled um, instance of that class. So actually, the um, library is pretty powerful, really. And uh, it has a great API uh, documentation. And um, it, it comes with even more uh, advanced features. Like, for instance, uh, it, it prevents you also from circular dependencies. Um, it, it gives you uh, the possibility to define dependency scopes that are basically, uh, that's basically kind of a way to um, define your caching behavior of the instances. And it also gives you the opportunity to use ES6 symbols as identifiers in order to prevent uh, naming co collusions. Yes. Collisions. collisions. Yeah. There has been no collusion. <laughs> yes, I think especially the last one is quite helpful if you think of that you have a large uh, application and if you purely rely on strings to actually resolve your dependencies, it will be quite likely that at some point you uh, will have problems. We've seen that it that kind of works in JavaScript, but it still not as neat as what we've seen before, right? And that um, comes down to the fact that certain language features are just not available in, in JavaScript. So we don't have interfaces there. But the nice thing is we have something that is very close to JavaScript and it becomes more and more popular um, in the ecosystem as TypeScript. So it's kind of a strictly typed version of JavaScript that gives you just the, those features that if you're coming from a very object-oriented programming background that you might use in, in JavaScript. So for example, interfaces, and that's quite useful because based on this then you can really decouple your dependencies as we have seen um, a bit earlier. Second super useful feature are decorators um, that you can then use to um, annotate your code. Interesting thing is that decorators will become also a feature of JavaScript itself. So um, there's this committee, TC39, which takes care of the standard that is the basis for JavaScript. And um, in that committee, the feature decorators is already a proposal in, I think, stage two or four. So can be expected that this feature will be available next year or the year after. TypeScript. The, in, the nice thing is actually that in Versify.js, despite the name, actually also supports TypeScript. So we can have exactly the same example again in TypeScript. And it makes the code slightly shorter and a bit more concise. Um, so here, actually, we do the same as we did before, but we now um, don't have those um, imperative function calls to define our injectables and 
uh, our injected dependencies anymore. We annotate our code. So here there's a class annotation injectable and there is a constructor parameter annotation where we define the identifier that is actually connected to our client interface. And then the rest basically looks more or less the same. So we still have our container. We still bind um, our uh, class to the identifier. And then in the end, we resolve our dependencies by getting an instance by this identifier. So that already looks quite like the examples we've seen before and uh, comes qu quite close to that, which is uh, super nice. What about another popular uh, framework that we just did not mention before because it rather fits in that section here? So Angular, I think um, people who, have, who started using Angular, I think it was published in like 2009, um, were already confronted with the term dependency injection <laughs> um, because right, right from the beginning, actually, it introduced that concept. And that kept also going with um, Angular, so version 2 plus, um, which now is actually then written in TypeScript. So it can, make, can use all those um, things that we also already have seen in, in Versify.js. And if we now have a look at a very simple example, it looks more or less the same. So we have a class that gets annotated with this injectable uh, decorator. And we define uh, our constructor with uh, types. And everything else then is magically resolved by Angular. So we don't even have to take care that, that we have a container, et cetera. That is already done out of the box, which is quite nice. Um, there's another framework that gets more and more popular um, on the server side, actually. It's called Nest.js. It's heavily influenced um, by Angular and the concepts there, uh, but also by Symfony and um, the, the features that Symfony uh, from PHP provides. And having a look, so it's also written in TypeScript, having a look at the code here, more or less exactly the same. So you have an ejectable um, that annotates the class. And um, in this case, it's, it's a controller as we are on the, on the server side um, that just declares the uh, constructor parameter. And everything else is then automatically, magically handled by the framework, which is super convenient, actually. So what is our conclusion, Toby? The conclusion is, the first conclusion, <laughs> that it's super duper easy to mix up inversion of control <laughs> and dependency injection. And both of them are programming principle builds that are uh, the base for dependency injection. And that is actually an implementation strategy um, that can help you with the following things. If you purely stick to it, it might help you to make your dependencies visible. You are able to actually separate your dependency management from your business logic, which is quite nice. And ideally, you can, by using this, also reduce duplication within your code. On the downside, actually, of course, if you add an additional layer to your application that adds complexity, so you should be aware of that. In most cases, actually, it should be worth it. But everything comes at, at a cost, right? So yeah, one other takeaway is definitely that um, 
Dependency injection makes it easy to create testable code because it enables you to, uh, or it, it makes mocking so much easier and in the end that uh, makes your whole scope easily to test. So we learned that it is quite a good practice to make your depends uh, your, your services between each other depend on abstractions not on concrete implementations and we've seen that by the use of interfaces that is actually more or less easily um, achievable um, it's nice to avoid circular dependencies as once your application grows over time and you start to refactor and you might realize that you want to extract cer certain functionalities together with a, with a um, abstraction and the loose coupling, it might be then way easier to actually extract code into separate packages, modules, maybe microservices, um, whatsoever, to allow you to keep your application maintainable also when it scales and grows. Yeah, so our conclusion also like for the JavaScript world is that um, there are like the, like the, the principles are also super helpful uh, when you test or develop your code. Also, uh, there are a lot of uh, implementations in some of the popular frameworks already. And um, yeah, I think there is not really a clear direction yet. Um, so like all the frameworks uh, interpret dependency injection a little bit differently. And, um, but the, on the plus side, there are a lot of very powerful libraries that you can use uh, already. So um, I, think, um, I think we should, should add, uh, definitely uh, follow that trend. And then um, when we think a bit of uh, TypeScript actually to unfold the full potential of uh, dependency injection, um, it requires to have types and interfaces. Um, and with TypeScript, we get those language features already um, to make that possible. Um, it is interesting to see that quite some popular frameworks actually implement that at their core. Um, and in general, I would say it's just another good reason to have a look at TypeScript and also consider that um, for upcoming projects. Um, and uh, hopefully, we uh, made you curious and uh, uh, you feel motivated to have a bit of a look um, maybe into one of those libraries. Um, uh, they are really, the APIs are quite extensive and uh, it's, I think, quite interesting to see what you can actually do with them and how to integrate them in your applications. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Until next time.